left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. The velocity of money that I refer to with the refis is in some cases they'll refi half your money back to you. In some cases, it might be all of it, somewhere in between. Two or three years in, you're still in the deal because they haven't sold the deal. So you still have equity growing in it. You're still getting cash flow off of it, but you've got a lot of your original capital back. Then now I can go jump in another deal or two that much quicker, you know, two years into it, three years into it, instead of waiting five years. And then that's just that much more I can take the capital that I've earned and get into broader deals or more money in a deal. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal. But with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of passive investing from left field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm happy today to have Chad Ackerman with me. He's a senior consultant working for a major bank as well as one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors. He's been a major contributor to the development of all of our infielder tools, and we're very thankful for that. And he's working towards his goal of financial freedom. Chad, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Excited to be here. You know, as we always do when, uh, when I introduce a new guest, we start with your journey. How did you get to where you are? What got you into real estate, passive investing? Can you kind of just start from the, the beginning or the middle, wherever you want to start, and just kind of tell us your, uh, the story of your journey? Sure. Uh, happy to go through it. So I, 
I've been a career W-2 guy. I'm still in a W-2 today. And what allowed me to stumble into this world literally happened to be me taking a different job that had a commute to it that gave me time in the car that uh, somebody I worked with mentioned looking for another income stream and mentioned real estate investing that perked my interest. And so I started looking at podcasts and books to listen to while I was in the car. And that fed into me just spiraling into this world, uh, really enjoying what I was learning, soaking it in and uh, egging me on to where I just absorbed as many podcasts as I could get through, as many books as I could read. From there, I was able to find Bigger Pockets website, which allowed me to identify local networking groups to meet up with. That led to networking with a group of people that opened some doors to actually do, take some action, which took a while to get to, as I think a lot of people go through. Uh, but it, it got me to a point where I was able to do my first real estate investing deal, which was actually a private loan to a, a group of people I was networked with that were flipping a house. But that at least got my foot in the door. It got me doing something. And literally, as soon as I wrote the check, I was excited about it and wanted to go find another one immediately. You know, right. like this, this felt like something I wanted to do. But I kept chasing the shiny objects, thinking, you know, the flips or the buy and holds seemed to be the way I should go. I even got in with a network group and we tried to do a wholesale business for a little while. And I think I knew that the wholesale business wasn't for me long term, but it was another education piece for me. Go learn a little bit more about the business, get into it a little bit further and network in with some more people that I wanted to be tied into. And then from there, I happened to be at one of our local meetup groups and this gentleman got up to speak about how he had just quit his W-2 job to move into the passive income world, the switch flipped with me of like, that's what I want to look at getting into. That gentleman happened to be you, as a matter of fact, <laughs> just so you know, in case you're not aware yeah. of that. <laughs> I remember. Yes. So I got a hold of you after that meeting and asked if we could meet to learn more about it because I'm like, the buying holds, the flips, the wholesaling, it was all interesting. But while I was in the W-2, it just did not seem like a possibility for me, really, to be sustainable. The passive income was then intriguing because that seemed like an avenue for me to really get into this world and still be in the W-2 until I could bridge that gap and cover the expenses that I needed with the passive income and go from there. So that led to me learning more and digging in further and starting to uh, reach out to sponsors and get to know people until I pulled the trigger and invested in my first deal in September of 2020. So in the thick of the pandemic, I ventured into the passive investing world as it is. I'm very excited about that deal still. It's an interesting investment in the Cleveland area that I can't wait to see what it does for us. Well, that, that's great. And you know, a couple of times, at least three times in there, you were talking about the networking part of it, right? You were part of a network that led you to doing the private loan. You're part of a network that led you to maybe doing wholesaling, the network that led you to passive investing. Obviously, networking is important. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's you know one of the big things that we do at Left Field Investors. We're all about education and networking. Can you talk about some of the benefits that you get from just having a network of, of people that can kind of you can learn from and you can teach at the same time. 
I think that's a great question. I think that's been the most important part of my journey is tying into the networking. I'm a data collector. I'm an analytic analytic at heart, and I'm a data collector. The networking feeds that element for me to be able to get multiple inputs on what I'm trying to do to make sure I'm making an educated decision here. And that's what I enjoy about it. I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the room. I want to gather much more intelligent people that are further down the road than me around me to pressure test all my questions before I make my decisions. And that's that's exactly what it fed into. And that that network group changed. Those groups you mentioned, those were three different groups by the time it was over with because I was learning an element that was a different piece. But then I learned that's not the avenue I really want to go. And I searched out for another network that got me to what I thought my goals were tied to, how it could align to what ended up being the passive investing world, which ended up being the founders of Left Field when it was all said and done. That really gave me a lot of confidence to go forward with what my decisions were. I was worried almost about being a co-founder with Left Field because I'm like, I don't know what I bring to the table on this. But then my perspective changed to be like, well, I'm closest to maybe who our visitors are that I'm newer to the group than maybe the rest of the field. So I can bring that perspective to the team and help us level set and calibrate our message that we're trying to deliver for those that are just starting out and so forth. So that that led into it too. But the networking has been extremely important uh, along my way that, that I've uh, had a lot of luck with, thank goodness, and got a lot of benefit out of. Yeah, well, I mean, your your contributions to left field have been significant, not just in like you said, you bring a different perspective than some of us that have been doing a little bit longer, but also just on all the tools, the Excel spreadsheets and all that that you've done have, have been fantastic. So we really appreciate that. Thank you. But I, I want to also step back to you. You mentioned the shiny object syndrome, and we've talked about this before, how we both have had it, <laughs> how you kind of we both still do have it. My question is, how do you because I did the same thing, right? I was I started networks because I didn't have anybody to talk to when I was doing act, active investing. And then I realized, oh, I don't really like active investing. I don't do passive investing. And then, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing at, at first. So I was just, I had a an old IRA and I was just investing for, with whoever I stumbled across, you know, right. oh, this looks cool. So how do you go from chasing all those shiny objects to where now, you know, I see what you're doing and you're more focused. I, I'm the same way. You kind of know what you're going to invest in. It's not super exciting, but it's what will grow your wealth, right? right. It's what's going to get you to financial freedom. So can you discuss a little bit about how you got through the shiny object syndrome and now you're into the the boring, just basic investments that, that we're all doing and that we're all making money with? Right. I think I hear this kind of question on a lot of podcasts too. And you hear a lot of answers and I've thought about this in the past. I think it's such a situational answer, right? We're all so different. We all have different situations we're in. In my situation, what led me through it, one was I'm still in the W-2. So, you know, I'm working a full-time job. It's actually, you know, more like a 60 to 70 hour a week job uh, the last year. So it has absorbed a lot of my time that hasn't given me flexibility to try some of the shiny object items that I might've gone down if I hadn't been so busy. So partly that's what led to it, I think. Part of it is my risk tolerance too, of where am I 
I've got two teenage kids that are, one's a senior in high school, so she's about to move on. One's a sophomore. So I've got just a couple more years with him. Where I saw what I was trying to do today and how that would transpire over the next few years versus what expenses I would have because the kids will be moving on to college. The college funds will take care of that. It led to a lot of this holistic view to really judge what made sense to me and what didn't. And ultimately, as I studied the passive investing world and dug into it and educated myself more and networked with you and others that I've gotten to talk to, I've learned that my goals can be achieved through the passive income just as easily as trying to flip and buy and hold and build up a hundred doors, you know, of my own rentals and deal with all the headaches that come with it. And I don't have to do some of those headaches by going the passive route. It felt like I could still get to the end game. I could still do it while I was in my W-2, which is a little more of a security blanket. And that led to where I could make more aggressive decisions around how I invested at the end of the day. Um, So it, it was that whole process that is very independent to me and my current situations. So it's by no means a path that I would suggest others follow necessarily, but it's a path. It's one of many. And, you know, people really need to break down what their goals are, what their current situations are, and how best to get to those goals through the process then. So do you think that, I mean, obviously you learned a lot going through the process that you did where you're starting, hey, I'm going to be a flipper. Maybe I'll be a wholesaler. Maybe I'm a private lender. And then you kind of found, I, I did, again, I did the same thing, right? I <laughs> I had the multifamily properties that I owned and, and ended up selling them. And, and so then I was like, yes, I want to be a passive investor. I know that's what I want to be. Do you have any advice or maybe shortcuts you could offer someone who is where you were a few years ago, where you're just trying things out and you're dipping your toe in? And do you think that you could skip all that stuff and just go directly to passive? Or do you think you kind of have to putter around to find your find your spot before you settle in? I think passive investing too often probably isn't option that people think of, but it's absolutely an option. So I I did the one private loan and that's the only thing that I've done that wasn't, and technically that is passive investing, right? I I wasn't actively involved in it either, but I didn't buy a house to flip or hold or anything. I was studying and kind of in analysis paralysis for a while that I discovered the passive side and the light came on and you may have been the one that told me, so what if you had to take 50 grand to go buy a, a house that needed work, some forced equity, you were going to fix it up with another 25 grand and then you were going to sell it and hope to make 110 on, you know, or sell it for 110 and make some money on it. All that effort that goes into it to pay yourself for the time needs to be baked into that discussion too. I think you were the one that maybe said, you know, you could take 75 grand and go get in one, two, maybe even three passive investing deals, see the same kind of returns in the long run without the headaches of lifting a hammer, chasing tenants, you know, vetting contractors, dealing with plug toilets in the middle of the night or whatever the case may be. Right. So it that really kind of rang through to me when I started boiling the numbers down. Yeah, I could do, I think I was struggling with the velocity of money and thinking, gosh, passive investing, they're going to have to hold my cash for three years, five years, seven years, depending on the deal. But the more I've learned about this side of the industry, you see that there's cash flow that comes back a lot quicker than you think in many cases. Might be a little bit in monthly returns, but in a lot of cases and a lot of deals I've gotten into, 
they're refining your money back out in two years, you know, maybe three. That gives you that velocity a little quicker than what the performer might have said that we're going to hold your money for seven years before, you know, we give it back kind of thing. So what I learned in the long run to answer your question is that I could achieve my goals just as easily through passive investing and not disrupt my world as much where every weekend and every evening I was out at the rental trying to fix it up and get it ready to flip or whatever the case may be. So I could have that mailbox money coming in and that potential return that was going to come at some point in time and see those goals being achieved just as easily without some of the headaches that you would on passive side. Now, you know, if that's not quick enough for somebody, then that's a different story. But to me, it was fine. It worked. It made sense in my case that passive worked just as effectively as flipping would. Right. And even even with flipping, it's not going to be one year and you're done with your W-2. You know, it's if you're going to do it safely and, and to be confident about it, it's going to take some time anyway. Exactly. And I think we've we've all learned that, you know, two or three, four years, if you focus, you can really do this passive stuff. Now, you have to have capital. I think if you are just starting out and you're young and you haven't worked long enough and you don't have a whole lot of capital, then I can see starting in the active because there's ways to do things without having that money. But in the passive world, you definitely do need some capital to start. Now, you mentioned velocity of money. And you know I think that's a really important point because the liquidity of these passive investments is, is as you said, very low. But surprisingly, you can get a refi or get your money back faster. So can you talk a little bit about what the velocity of money means and how that's going to help accelerate your W-2 exit? To me, it relates to kind of the whole idea of compound income, compound interest, compound capital in this case. The idea being the perk that I see in it and how it's working in the investments that I've done. I say the minimum to get into a deal is 25 grand and I give that to them and they say they're going to hold it for five years. I'm getting a little bit of cash flow on that money throughout that five years, but I got to wait until the end of the five years to see, you know, hopefully 45, 50 grand back in what I invested in. And then I can reinvest at that point in time. The velocity of money that I refer to with the refis is maybe they, in some cases, they'll refi half your money back to you. In some cases, it might be all of it, somewhere in between two or three years in. Well, you're still in the deal because they haven't sold the deal. So you still have equity growing in it. You're still getting cash flow off of it, but you've got a lot of your original capital back. Then now I can go jump in another deal or two that much quicker, you know, two years into it, three years into it, instead of waiting five years. And then that's just that much more I can take the capital that I've earned and get into broader deals or more money in a deal, whatever the case may be, to just expand that wealth that I'm trying to grow and get to the goals that I'm trying to get to. Right. And that, and by doing that, you have that $1 that is now giving you two different returns. And so it's a snowball, right? Because when the second deal goes a couple of years, and if they're able to refinance that, then you go and you're in a third deal. Now you have $1 with three returns. So you know the the way we think of this is multiple income streams replacing your w2 but then $1 each dollar creates multiple income streams on it, on its own so it's kind of it goes exponential at some point right where you just have this big snowball that's easily rolling downhill and you just keep refining keep getting capital back and keep reallocating it and what we haven't talked about is you're probably not paying taxes along the way 
because every time you sell something, you're buying something and the, the taxes keep getting deferred. The epiphany I had the other day as I was thinking through this and the capital that I had been able to raise when I started into this investing process, the epiphany I had was that I don't think I'll have to put any of my own capital in again with other than what I've done already. It should grow and return and keep me in the game and meet my goals without me having to raise more capital on my own to be able to put back in. I'll be able to grow off of those original dollars that I've got and, and I'm done. So I'm playing with house money, if you will, the rest of the time. And I think that's an amazing thing to have to be like, wow, I've, I've finished raising money to invest in my mind if things work the way that I feel like they should work. Well, that's fantastic. You know, and, and I, I've never thought of it in that way, but you, you certainly can do that. I think the, the challenge is in those first two to three years to have the patience to wait and, and realize that, yes, this is going to work because one of the big obstacles or one of the stumbling blocks is that you don't know what's going to happen because we don't have a whole lot of exits, right? We've, we, we're planning all this and we think, oh, this is great, but we haven't actually put it in a place because it takes three to five years for these deals to exit. So you're hoping for the refis and I'm sure they'll come, but that's part of the, you have to have patience, right? Yeah. And that's why this isn't, super exciting. It's not like the stock market where you can check it every day, right? Or looking at Bitcoin where you can check it every day. This is set it and forget it almost. Yeah. Which is, I think what led me to be in that mode is the fact that I've been a 401k guy most of my career, right? And so I've always been of the mindset, yeah, I don't want to look at my 401k every month. I want to just let it go. When the stock market goes down, I'm just excited that, hey, I'm buying stock that much cheaper because it's going to rebound eventually. And I hope that it's on the uptick when I'm ready to really have that money for some use. I guess in a way where I'm not patient is I liked enough of what I saw with the passive investing world, and you're aware of this, but I liquidated my 401k so that I would have this big batch of capital that I could go invest with and really initiate the investing towards my goals, that that is partly why I am pretty sure that I should be able to be done investing my own money because I've been able to take that chunk of money and go forth and play in this space and hopefully see that everything come to fruition like I've planned it out to be. Well, so let's talk about the 401k a little bit because I think that takes a lot of courage to take that large chunk of money that everyone says you, you shouldn't access until you're 59 and a half. Now, obviously, you know, I, I assume it's a, a regular 401k and not a Roth. So you would have that tax regardless, whether you wait until you're 59 and a half or you do it now, a big chunk of that, probably 30% is going to Uncle Sam, right? So really what we're talking about is the sacrifice is the extra 10% penalty. So can you share with us how you got the courage, got over that ingrained knowledge that we all have, like this 401k, do not ever touch it. How did you get through that? It might be idiocy, really, that's driving that. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> but uh, it was the balance of what I know of the stock market and the fluctuations it has, what I've seen of the real estate investing world, what I've learned through the networking, what I've educated myself on with books and podcasts. And I had seen enough in that data collection. I honestly made this decision before I'd received even a, a single 
check back, a monthly distribution or a quarterly distribution. I made this call because all of it just seemed to make more sense to me that because of where I am in my current situation with expense, you know, with kids moving on before I'm done with a W-2, so I can always bounce back into a W-2 job if need be. But it all just made sense that I decided to pull the trigger. A lot of it was talking to you and you saying, you know, hey, you're going to pay the tax on it anyway. So that almost should be a moot point in the whole discussion. Then the question was, well, is the 10% an impact to you or not? And in my mind, I felt like I could grow that money out of my 401k much better than 10% by investing it in these real estate deals that I've been looking at that it made more sense to me to go ahead and bite the bullet and take this charge. I It was all aligned too to the goals of wanting to get out of my W-2 job sooner than later. And this was a big avenue to move me down that progression a lot quicker that it just made sense to me to take this risk. And, and I almost don't view it as much of a risk as leaving it in the 401k because it will fluctuate. It ultimately will grow, I think, over time. And it has. And that's what afforded me the opportunity to do what I did. But I felt like I have better control over it going forward by doing the real estate investing instead of the, the stock market, that it just made sense to me to pull the trigger. And as I said, I, I kind of burnt the ships and like, OK, we're doing this now. This is where we are. Uh, so let's go. Let's see what happens out of this. So, yeah. Well, I think that's great. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the 401k at retirement, right? So if you have a million dollars in your 401k at retirement, most financial advisors would tell you, you can only take 4% out, right? And it's going to be taxed at, you know, 25 or 30%, where if you have that same million dollars and you put it into passive investments, you're going to collect 7 or 8% just in the preferred returns and forget about the appreciation. So you're going to be you're going to have a lot more income in retirement. Now what you're doing is you're just shortcutting it because you're saying I'm going to start now before I retire to get that snowball rolling of the appreciation part and it will help you with your cash flow to get out of your W2. So it seems like uh, it's a really good plan. I think that the difficulty is is just getting over the the stigma. Oh, you're one of those guys who crashed your 401k. I mean Half the people are going to think you're an idiot and half are going to be like, wow, I wish I had those guts, you know? Well, and ask me in five years, right? Let's let's talk in five years and we'll see better. Right. <laughs> but no, I get it. It wasn't a light decision to make by any means. But where I sat, I felt like I could afford to take this, this challenge and take control of my money. On top of the 8% preferred, I'm getting the 8% preferred tax-free because of how we can stay in the game and roll that tax, defer that tax down the road where I wouldn't have been able to do that with my 401k money at the end of the day either. So right. it it feels like it will allow me the opportunity to keep more of my own money in the long run and grow my wealth a lot more consistently than my 401k was going to let me do. Right. And you're not going to be sharing as much with the government because you're paying taxes now instead of letting your whole nest egg and 401k grow so that you can pay more taxes to them later. And that that just seems to make sense to me as well. I'd like to switch gears here. And I know that you do group investing through TribeVest. So can you tell me what made you want to do that? How did you find your group? And just kind of talk a little bit about uh, about the group investing that you're doing. 
Sure. So there, there were actually a couple whys in it. As I, the second why came after I really started to study it a little bit more too. But the first why was just the I like the idea of diversifying my money that much more. Of these sponsors have deals you can get into with minimums. Those minimums eat up your capital really quick, uh, depending on how much capital you have. I love the idea of being able to get into more deals by jumping into a tribe and us sharing that initial money, the initial capital we needed to get in. Mainly, my big goal for it was one, network with some more people, get to know some more people that were trying to get into this. But two, it was to be able to meet more sponsors too. My capital was going to run out. I had X number of deals I gotten into. This was going to take what maybe the last bit of capital I had and it was going to spread it out over, we ended up being in five different deals with five different sponsors. So it gave me an opportunity to meet more sponsors, which is ultimately my goal right now it, with this initial investment push is meet as many sponsors as I can to figure out who I really know, like, and trust. So as that, that velocity money comes back and I can reinvest, I'll go bigger probably with the sponsors that I really have gotten to like and see what they're doing, like that it fits in my mold, what I'm looking for and those kind of things. So it opened the door to be able to meet more sponsors. I met the group through Leftfield Investors, through our, our network of having our meeting. We had uh, somebody from TriVest come talk to us one night. I reached out to you afterward and said, this sounds interesting. I think I'd like to get involved. And you said, great run one. <laughs> and so <laughs> I said, sure, okay, we'll, we'll do that. So I was able to reach out to the group that was attended that left field meeting and ask if anybody was interested. And we had, we ended up getting nine of us in that group when it was said and done. And it's a mixed bag of people that are brand new, that these are the first investments, passive investments they've done and some veterans. And that's been very beneficial from a network standpoint too, just to learn off of each other that much more. Uh, hear the questions that the newbies have, hear how the veterans have approached this in the past and so forth. And I'm somewhere in the middle ground of that now. Uh, but you, you know, you've said this before yourself that I learn something every time I get on the phone with these people, whether they're new to it or been doing it for years. It, there's so much value in it. Gets me thinking now, maybe that feeds the shiny object syndrome too. I don't know, but it helps at least educate me a little bit more, which is what I love to get into with this business is just learn, see what different avenues are there. Hey, Left Builders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe This. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently, if I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. How did you get comfortable with, because you didn't know everybody in the tribe when we started. I mean, as you know, I'm part of that tribe also, but how did you get comfortable with contributing money, getting into an LLC with effectively what were at the time strangers. So how do you, for, for people that are thinking about a tribe, but don't maybe have friends and family they can do it with, and they're thinking of, you know, using their network to start a tribe. Can you talk about how you 
got through that and how you learned to trust people and to, yeah, you know, we all kind of have the same philosophy. Let's, let's go do this. And, and also have there been any conflicts? Good question. So I think it was a combination of as me being the one that was going to run it. I tried to reach out to everybody that showed interest and just understand their goals, where they were in their journey, what they were trying to accomplish and see that it aligned or was least in the ballpark for us to not be going in very different directions anyway. And everybody was. Partly everybody was just excited because of the communicator, the the session that we had with the tribe best people that they were on board to try some of this out. But a lot of it was that first individual conversations with everybody that was going to join. Then we had multiple team calls before we really pulled the trigger on, is this really something you're comfortable with doing? And that was a lot of defining what we were going to be involved with, defining how much capital we were talking about, what types of investments we were going to make. We tried to go through that, which built our operating agreement um, before we said, are, okay, we kind of reached a point where we said last chance, you know, either you like this and you want to stay in because we're committed. As we kind of say, we're, we aren't dating anymore. We're going to be married. So <laughs> are, are you going to stay? Great. Then let's go. We didn't have anybody back out. Everybody seemed comfortable with it. I wouldn't say we've had any trouble. I think the group's been great. Uh, I think they've been very good about asking a lot of good questions that we need to, to help push us, make sure that we're taking in tie and everything, but also on board with a lot of your leadership, being more of the veteran of the group that's in our tribe, the fact that you have other tribe experience to talk through how things have gone in those. I think that's been very helpful to keep everybody on board. There is always a good dialogue from the group, which I love. You know, I don't want everybody just to say, yeah, Chad, go with whatever you want to do. So I love the fact we get banter back and forth. But ultimately, we've always been able to get to the same page. And I feel like everybody's been happy with where we've gone so far. And you you talk about everyone getting on the same page. How do you find investments, number one? And then how do you decide together, hey, this is the deal we want to get on, particularly with some of these that you get the email, hey, the deal's out and you got to decide or it's gone tomorrow. So I know that was multiple questions, but so how do you find the investments and how do you decide on the deal, especially with the short-term decision you have to make? Yeah, I think what we tried to do to help with that whole process is define scope of what we were comfortable dealing with. Ultimately, we decided on certain sponsors that we seemed to know, like, and trust or people in the group knew and invested with already that others in the group were comfortable with focusing on so we could watch their deals. We pivoted a little towards the end of our capital spend that we said, well, let's diversify and take it to a different asset class. So we got definition around that as well. But ultimately, we tried to have a lot of criteria defined already ahead of time. So when a deal came available, the majority of the group were okay with the idea and just wanted to see the details. And that way we could zip through the details quickly and vote, which TribeVest makes it really easy to keep track of all this on their website, that we could turn that around in a day or two, which we needed to do in a lot of cases. Luckily, on some of the ones that are more aggressive, we were able to get maybe soft investment or soft commitments to the sponsor to give us time to vet it out through the group and get a vote. And that came from a lot of networking with the sponsor between you and I probably more than anybody in the group 
just to say, hey, we've got a tribe. We need to run it by everybody to get a majority vote. And then we'll be fully committed if everybody buys in that they were usually comfortable with us going that route as well. So it, it gave us some flexibility if it was an aggressive case, which one of them was a pretty aggressive deal that, dis that filled up quick, but we were able to meet all the requirements, get the votes that we needed and get back to the sponsor in time to get into that deal as well. So you, you've said we've allocated all the capital that we currently have. So what's next for this tribe? Is Are there going to be more people putting in more capital or is this just going to run the, the five deals that we have and use distributions to invest if, if we get enough distributions over the next couple of years? What's, what's next? Yep. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the site, that it makes it easy for us to have those kind of conversations. And ultimately, we put it to a vote. I mean, we're, we're like a board of trustees here of what do you want to do? Are we comfortable just sitting with the five investments we've got? and watch them grow and take the cash flow and it sits in our account? Or when we have enough money in there, do we go back and reinvest it at that time and we can vote about it when that occurs? Or is there some deal coming up that looks really good that we like and all of us like that maybe we don't have the capital personally to get into, but hey, I've got five grand, let's everybody put in five grand and then more on top of what we've done already and then go get in this deal that we think is going to be very lucrative down the road. So I think it's all those flexibilities that we'll just have to pressure test the group and run it by them and see what the interest is of the team. And if we get majority vote, then we'll we'll move forward. That's part of the nice part about getting comfortable with your group and your tribe and having the Zoom meetings that we had so that you know, all right, we're going to be able to work together and and there's everyone's working in the same direction. And I think that that helps a lot. So I want to switch again. And, you know, you were instrumental in the deal analyzer that we have at Left Field Investors. I mean, you took this spreadsheet that I thought was pretty good and you made it incredible with your Excel skills, which are off the charts. I really appreciate that. But in there, there's a bunch of different metrics that we we track when we're analyzing a deal. So I'd like to hear, like, what are the couple of the metrics that you look at that you really concentrate on when you're looking at a deal? So I, I think it's a great question. I was giving this some thought because I know you like to ask this one too on the podcast. And I, I think it's been part of my journey, right? As I've gotten educated more and understand it more, I think those metrics have changed. I think originally I got wrapped up in, I'll call them the sexy metrics of, ooh, I, the equity multiplier. That's great. I want to see a 2X payout, you know, and the cash on cash of, well, that's what I need to be comfortable with if it's going to pay my bills. And that kind of thing down the road. So I think that's what I was focused on early on. One, they're a little easier to understand and interpret. And again, they're exciting to see those numbers out there. I think that's progressed as I've educated more myself more of not only what are my goals out of the investment I'm making, be it do I want cash flow? Do I want equity? Do I want some form of both? I don't think I was originally thinking about that with half of the ones. It was just, ooh, this deal's neat in Cleveland. I'm going to go do it. It's not that far away. and go see it. Uh, so it's exciting just to go get into something. And by all means, I think taking that action, taking that step is worthwhile if you're semi-educated about it, just because it gets you in and you learn so much from it that that progresses. And then I learned, you know, hey, don't, don't chase. This was a heavy renovation. They're stripping this building down to the bare bones and going to rebuild it all. So there was no cash flow on this for two or three years. But the equity that it is should get out of all this is going to be fantastic. And I'm going to love that return 
someday down the road. But if my goal is to get out of my W-2, that's not exactly the kind of investment I need to go make four, five, six times. I need. I started shifting gears toward, well, where are ones that have some forced depreciation, some cash flow, so that I can try to build that as I go? And now I've progressed all the way to where I want to get in some to diversify, some that are pure cash flow, just so I can count on it. There's a couple of deals that are just tried and true. I get a check every month. I can count on it kind of thing. So my metrics have changed to where break-even occupancy became an important one to me. That that was an easy one for me to kind of judge of, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. If their occupancy drops down, this deal says 60% is their break-even. Well, I feel pretty comfortable that we aren't going to get that level, I hope anyway, uh, if you will. And nobody's gotten anywhere close to their break-evens on the deals that I've been looking at. Uh, but then economic vacancy, that's been another one that's been huge. That It's taken me a while to educate myself on what that metric's really doing, but it bakes in so much detail on how solid the deal is that that becomes a big number to look at in my current state That as I'm looking at. Something we've kind of talked about in the forums a lot too lately is capital stack and understanding where my investment may fall just in case as an insurance. If something goes wrong with the deal, where do I fit in the pecking order to be able to get my money back in any profit that I might get so that I can go on and do the next one and not hinder myself under too many other layers of investors that are going to get money before I do. So so it's been a journey and an education just to learn all these different metrics and what they really mean and find yeah. ones that are more pertinent to your current state. Uh, and it, I'll, I assume I'll always be learning about these things. So it'll change. Yeah. The capital stack one is one that I, I didn't understand either until the, the past year. And that was so powerful. And what we're talking about is mostly a lot of these syndicators now are doing class A shares and class B shares where the class A shares get a higher preferred return, but no upside. And the class B shares get lower preferred return, but they get the upside. And so when I was originally investing, I just thought, well, I want the upside. So obviously I want class B shares. But what you don't realize is what you just said, you're in a different spot in the capital stack. So it is exactly, it is leverage, right? Yes. So if the deal performs better than expected, you know, B class shares are going to be super happy. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. But if it performs worse than expected, the A shares are going to get paid before the B shares. So your B shares might get nothing or less than the preferred return. So it's just, it's something I hadn't thought of before. So I, I love that concept that you're bringing that up. So the last question I always ask on the podcast is what's your favorite podcast? Some of the podcasts you listen to, you said you, you know, that's kind of how you got into this thing. So if you have a couple of uh, good real estate podcasts or any kind of podcast, we'd love to, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, I don't know if I have any new ones that others haven't said already, but I'll reiterate that I started out with Bigger Pockets, and I think that's a super valuable podcast and website to get connected to as you're learning. But there wasn't very much about passive income investing in that area. So I fed from there into the Real Estate Guys radio show, and I think that one's been very helpful along the way just to get tidbits and, and hear things. Um, I've also, I listened to the passive wealth strategy a lot. And I like that one as well because it gets a little more tactical, I think, than the radio, uh, real estate radio guys get into for what I'm looking to do anyway. So I've enjoyed that one as well. Excellent. Those, those, I, I listened to all three of those. Those are great options. So Chad, one more thing, you know, 
I, I already said this and I probably repeat it too much, but I know you're working 70 hours a week in your regular W-2 job, but the, the amount that you've contributed to left field and all those tools and all your other contributions, it's been fantastic. We appreciate it. We can't wait to uh, until you're full time with left field and you can <laughs> ditch the W-2. But until then, how can listeners get in touch with you? So easiest is probably to go through our website at Left Field Investors. And you can look me up in the profile of our uh, founders in there and track me down through that. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Chad, for being on the show. It was fantastic. And I enjoy these conversations with you as as we have them on the podcast or if we have them uh, at the bogey. So thank you for, uh, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. That was a nice conversation with Chad, and it was the last of our Founders episodes. If you want to check out the other episodes, my episode was episode four. Sean Donnelly, he was episode eight. Ryan Steve was episode 13, and Steve Sue was episode 20. And here we are at uh, Chad Ackerman finishing up the Founders episodes. In future episodes, we are going to interview community members from left field investors and some infielders. So if you're interested in being a guest on the show, just let me know. Some of the things I liked about talking to Chad is the velocity of money and the concept that we've all kind of figured out that when you invest in a deal, in some of these deals, you can get your money back quickly, 18 months to three years, you get your capital back, you're still in the deal, and you go and invest in a new deal with that capital. And so now you're earning two returns with the same dollar, and that just snowballs when the next deal, you get refi back, now you're in three deals with the same dollar. And I really liked how Chad was talking about that and how that's kind of a focus of his investing. He also talked a lot about TribeVest and how that's helped him. And he's really been an effective leader of our tribe, kind of getting everyone going, finding out where we will invest, and then actually helping us invest the money. So he's using TribeVest to great effect and, and helping others get involved in syndication investing, which again, that just goes to the mission of left field investors, education and networking, trying to help people get into passive syndications. And then finally, I really need to thank Chad for, as I keep saying, he, he works in a stressful job and they just went through a merger, so he's got a ton of hours uh, in the W-2, but he always finds time to help left field investors with our tools. He's been instrumental in all of our tools, including the deal analyzer, the sponsor overview, and the portfolio tracker. So a big thank you to Chad, not only for being on the podcast, but for being such a great member of the Left Field Investors team. Thanks for hanging out in Left Field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.